Well, we're, um, hey everybody. We're coming out of this third week on idolatry. That was fun, wasn't it? Fun week. Yeah. That's my favorite week of the whole thing, actually. Um, we're coming out of this week on idolatry, and um, we're coming into the week on community. And one of the things that we need to like, recognize like, right up front is that we've probably still got idols that make us suspicious about community. Right? I mean, I mean the idols of privacy and freedom and independence are idols that keep us from embracing community. They do. We don't want other people's problems put on us. We don't want other people muddying up our, our nice little clean lives that we got going on. And it's, it's a little scary, but um, I don't care. It's, not, it's my job to, to tell you the truth, right? So I'll try to be nice. But um, if you were in a home study this last week, one of the passages you studied was Romans chapter 1, that whole section on the pagans and their sin and idolatry and trading um, the one ultimate thing for lesser secondary things and worshiping those things as though, although they were ends in themselves. And that created, that created in and of itself all kinds of problems, right? But one, one of the verses, I don't think you read, um, but it's the last verse in chapter 1 in Romans is this verse, which says, although they, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also what? They also approve of those who practice them. That is, they give affirmation to other people to join them. And so before we even get off the ground in terms of whether or not you should be deeply committed in your life to the community of believers, the one people God makes, um, what you need to know is you're all, we're already in a community. We've been living our whole lives in the community of idolatry. And the thing about communities is they form us. They develop us. They form our character. They form our feelings. They help us know what options are and aren't open to us. They, they, you know, we're still responsible for our decisions. And we still make choices. But our community deeply affects how those choices run, whether or not we can muster up or screw up the courage to make certain choices and so on. I don't know if you've had this experience, but I remember all through particularly my young life, and it's true now too, that there are certain things I would have done but for the opinions of others. Be why? What's that mean? What's the, opi the opinions of others are your community, and when you don't do something because of the opinions of others, your community is forming you against your better judgment. And most of us have experienced that at least once, but probably many times. There is a community of idolatry. We're already in a community. There's no such thing as not being in a community. You know, John Bon Jovi once said that no man is an island. Actually, sorry, that's a joke. That was, it was actually John Donne. But you know, a Puritan's not as sexy as a rocker, right? Um, nobody is an island. Everybody has somebody. Even the people who are antisocial make a little group, don't they? I mean, have you ever noticed that? Um, yeah, I mean, they're— the most antisocial, like, people that I know of, I would say, besides cannibals, would be, um, is that funny at all? Okay, w would be people who, like, do implants that make them look non-human. You know what I'm talking about? Like, they put these, like, plates in under their skin, and they just don't even look like, hardly like human beings. Um, and that's about as antisocial as you can get. I'm going to try to look like another species. But they have conventions! <laughs> There's still a community. We're all, we're all part of a community. And w before we recognize how badly we need the community of character that Jesus creates, we need to recognize what our character is already being formed by the idolatrous community we've been swimming in our whole lives. 
It's not a question of if or not. It's a question of, it's a question of which. And I experienced this a lot in my own life. When I, uh, my uh, family was real nominal Catholic, so I learned a little bit about how to fear God when I was a kid. But for the most part, I was left spiritually unformed. Which when I went into my junior high years and started liking girls and caring about where I was in the hierarchy, um, I realized that this was winning and this was losing and I was losing. And, um, you know, kids that don't grow or get hair on their legs till they're sophomores in high school have a little trouble moving up the line. And, um, so, but, I mean, I passionately dove into that whole commu- thing. How do I win? How do you, how, how can I get you to let me be on the top level? How can I... And so throughout those years, I went through the process of being unformed to the process of being deformed, spiritually, and in terms of character. And, um, but, you know, I would love to tell you that it was, there was this one moment where I knew Jesus was Jesus, and boom, it was over. He was the most valuable thing in the world. I didn't care what anybody else thought, and that was it. But that wasn't true. What happened was I came in contact with another community. That's what happened. I went to a summer camp where there were Christians who were my age, who, who were chasing after very different things. And I liked them. They, were, they had a different kind of strength, a different kind of love, different kind of interest, a totally different kind of relationship with each other. And I knew I really liked that. But I really liked this. And about the time I realized I liked this better, I started winning over here. And it, and it took four or five years before I decided I needed to be in this community, not that one. And I'm not saying that I, I traded friends, and that's what my Christianity is. It was always a wrestle in my heart with God. What did God want from me? Who did he call me to be? What am I supposed to be? Whose approval should I be after? It was always about God, but I was watching it being lived out, the two different answers being lived out in two different groups of people. And I I saw the nobility of one, and I saw a different kind of interaction in another, and eventually it was an enormous part of me recognizing that it needed to be totally different so that when I went to college for my freshman year where I still had one foot in this world, but most of my weight in that one, I put above my desk in my college dorm room um, 1 Peter 4, um, 3 and 4. It said, and I would, I would have put my name in there, but I just figured you was specific enough. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. And that, this wasn't exactly my high school list, but, um, but it was that sort of attitude of whatever makes me happy. They think it's strange that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they're going to heap abuse on you. If you switch communities, if you, follow the, if you come into the community of Jesus, if you want to be part of the, his community of character, if you want to be part of the body, the family, the unlikely group of friends, the fact, is, the fact of the matter is that the people who aren't are going to think it's really strange. And some of them are going to heap abuse on you. But there comes a point where you realize that it doesn't matter because that whole way is going away. You just can't go anymore. And, you, and guess what? You can't, just, you can't just walk alone. There's no such thing as a solitary path. There's one that's less traveled, but not one that you don't bushwhack it. Or you could look at this from another angle. You could say, what are the effects of the gospel. Not the gospel itself, the news that we believe, but what are its effects? What always happens when the gospel happens to somebody? What happens so regularly that you could actually use it as a test for authenticity? 
And I think when you look at scripture all the way through, it becomes really evident that God is always making a people. He's always making a family. He's always making a group of unlikely friends. He's always making one body. And that anybody who is authentically bit by the gospel, anybody who experiences regeneration, anybody who comes to faith in Jesus, anybody who's deeply converted and recognizes they have to make a community change, makes a community change. They recognize they have to be not just one of God's people, but among God's people. The gospel will always make us a community. It will always do that. Um, I'm gonna get a little bit more into that later, but you you need to recognize up front, because if you're resistant to the idea of really being part of the community of Jesus, what that means is, is that it doesn't mean you're a bad person. Well, you're already a bad person. We're all bad people, so... That's not even interesting anymore, is it? But, um, but it, what it means is, is there's something about the gospel that isn't clicking. Like, you don't, you don't really get it. You don't get how it interconnects very well. Because if you did, I wouldn't have to pre- preach this sermon, right? Because it would be so natural. But the, the problem is, is we don't get the gospel. That's why we're doing all this, right? Um... So one way to look at this is to say, is to see that the Bible uses all the most intense pictures of union and community um, when it talks about people who believe. So let me, let me just go through some of these so you can get a little bit of a sense of the picture of Scripture on this, okay? The first thing is that the Bible talks about God always making a people, a clan, a group that is united together as a, in a single citizenship. And that there's a, there's a certain amount of non-self-righteous pride, like, I'm one of these people. I know I'm one of these people, right? Which is, of course, people are really scared about that in our culture. And the only thing you're allowed to have that kind of clan-based pride for anymore is sports teams, right? But, um, anyway, we'll just leave that there. In Exodus 6, um, God is telling Moses what he's going to do with this slave people, the Israelites. And he, this is what he says. He says, I will, free you, I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with a mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So why is he saving them out of slavery just so that they cannot be slaves? No. He's saving them for a specific purpose. He's making them a people. Right? Or uh, later on in the New Testament in Titus chapter 2, I'm just going to use a few just to give you a feel for it. He says this, um, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness so that we can just be individually saved? No, actually but to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Or 1 Peter 2.10, where, where Peter writes, and he says, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy, which is an interesting parallel. Because one would normally sound to us like individual salvation. You hadn't received mercy, now have you received mercy. But it's right in parallel with the whole idea of a corporate peopleship. Once, you, once we weren't connected to each other. You know that? You and I, we weren't connected with we, to each other. We, there, there was no us. There was nothing between us. Most of us wouldn't even be friends with each other. Right? But now, we are a people. Right? 
You, see, like, if you met all the other UW fans or all the other Packer fans or all the, the other, God forbid, Bears fans, you, you, wouldn't have, you wouldn't be connected to them without that bond, most of them. Many of them. It wouldn't bind you together. But there is this one love that you do share, and it binds unlikely people together. And there's something supreme about the greatness of Jesus that binds together people who would otherwise be enemies. Deep blood enemies or just people who annoy each other. The second is that God makes a body. Now, it's, it's, listen, it's hard to get a more interconnected image than this. Right? How would you get a more interconnected image than you're part of the same organism? You're part of the same nucleotide? I don't know. But this is what he says in Romans 12. Each of us, just as each of us has one body with many members, that is parts, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. Each member belongs, is owned by all the others. Otherwise, you're what? If you're members, you are dismembered. Right? Or Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. Right? You don't want your body warring against itself, right? That's no fun. You want it working together. That's what the church is supposed to be like, he's saying. And be thankful. Or Ephesians 4.25, therefore each of you must put off falsehood. Okay, so we, we can't lie to each other, right? You can't lie to, to anybody else in here. Why? Is it because it breaks a commandment? Because he could have said that, right? He could have said, you know, one of the Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Biggies is don't give false testimony, right? Don't, don't be a liar. But he, that's not what he says, is it? Why doesn't it make any sense to lie because we're part of the same body. What, are you going to lie to your arm? It's, it, it's not just wrong, it's silly if you know what you are, right? Which, it's an interesting side point that the Bible calls husbands and wives one flesh too, but we'll just go past that for now. Third is a family. There's a number of passages that refer to God as creating a family. So here, eight, Romans eight twenty nine. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers, children. Or you could go on to say, it goes on in Romans 10, 8 to say, that we're also heirs. So how unified, how brother is this? Is it like, no kidding, brother, 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 brother? Right? Is it like Tommy Boy brother? And the idea is that you're an heir. You can't get much more brother than that to be a legitimate inheritor. And that's what the gospel makes us with, not just with each other, with Jesus. And then Matthew 12, this is a controversial saying of Jesus where somebody says, and says hey, Jesus, you're teaching all these people. You need to stop and go attend your family because they they're here to talk to you. And Jesus stops and he goes, he replies to him and he says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and my mother. And then the narrative stops because he probably went out and talked to his mommy, right? But the, he's making a point, isn't he? That there's a sense in which those who obey the one supreme great truth, those who are bound together by the will of God himself, there is a brotherhood and a sisterhood. There is a family formed between people that can't be broken. 
And there's, oh, and this, this is kind of a funny thing because Keller makes this point in one of his talks where he says, you know, there's a, there's a number of verses in the, in the New Testament where it tells people to bear with each other, which is really, that's a little gussied up, isn't it? I mean, you, you could just as easily translate that, put up with each other. That's what the word means. It means deal with it. Tolerate, literally. Tolerate each other. So, uh, and who do you do that with? <laughs> Oftentimes your family, right? Lots of people, but a lot of times your family. There are a lot of people, okay, let's be honest. Would you ever even talk to the members of your family or even be friends with them if they were not related to you? <laughs> I mean, how many, how many of you would say, you know what? There, this great cosmic providence happened. Exactly the people who would be my best friends in the world were just born in my family. Mm, that was great. <laughs> it's not really how it works, is it? But that's reality. The reality is, is, that, is that God has to, God has to talk at us sometimes like he's driving on a road trip in front of kids that don't have DVD players. And he's saying, listen, figure it out. Don't make me turn this car around. You need to, you need to tolerate each other. You need to put up with each other. Why? Because I don't care if you like each other. You're family. That's why. Right? That's really different than if you walk into Walmart and you don't like somebody there. You're both just consumers at an establishment, right? You just say, oh, sorry, that's your car. I'll just go get another one. And you never have to speak to them again. And that's what happens in, to people in churches who believe that essentially the relationship to each other is that they consume religious goods and services in the same place. But that's not what you are if you're a Christian. You're family. And you have to put up with each other because you're family. All right, so those are the four. There's more. We could go on and on. Um, oh, and then there's friend. Is the last one family still? Yes, it's a friend. And Keller talks about this one too. Let me see if I can make this work. Oh, I'm pushing the wrong button. That's really helpful. See if you can bring up that one for friend. Um, and that is that in, in one sense, this isn't really worth talking about because our concept of friend is so diluted now that it doesn't really make much difference to talk about it. Um, but I would rather rehabilitate our view of friendship rather than just capitulate to the fact that we don't think much of friendship anymore. And that is that in James 2.3, it says, um, And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. Think about that. What does Abraham believe God and it was credited, credited to him as righteousness mean? It means he was saved, right? I mean, if you go to Romans 4, Paul says, that's, what, that's all salvation is. God makes a promise. You believe that promise because he's trustworthy and you need it. And you're saved. He credits what you need to you. He just gives it. It's mercy. He just gives you the thing you need. You're saved. And then what, what does it say is the result of that? Because remember, in the Bible, Abraham is the father of who? All who believe, right? Abraham is the father. He is the type case for all who believe. Everybody, that's you, right? And it says that Abraham just believed the gospel. And what happened? Righteousness was credited to him, and the result was a friendship between him and God Almighty. In John 15, Jesus says, says to his disciples, you're no longer, no longer do I, uh, I'm sorry, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You see, it's, it's important at that point because Jesus is about to go to the cross, right? This is the last night. 
right? John 13 through 17 is the last night. So he's at the last night and he says, listen, you're, you're friends. You're not servants. Why? Because if, he, if, if Jesus doesn't have this straight, you, the disciples could get the idea that they're being used, right? Because they're all going to get killed. But Jesus is going to get killed first. And so he stops them and he says, listen, you're not servants. I've told you everything. Just like your friends, you are friends. We're friends. Uh, yeah, he's like, he's like, I'm Lord and King, yeah. But we're friends. I'm going to give myself to death for you. And then you are going to pour out your life for others. And that's just how it's going to happen. It's not because you're going to gain something from me or I'm going to gain something from you. It's just we love the right thing and we're going to give ourselves for other people in friendship. And that's it. That's all, that's all friendship is. And so when God says that we become unlikely friends because we received an unlikely friend, then we've got to rehabilitate the intensity of our concept of friendship, right? Okay, so um, before I talk about a little, couple other things here, I think one of the things we've got to recognize is that there's, there's something really standing in our way to embracing the biblical notion of community. And that is the fact that the community that we've all lived in in America um, is one of consumeristic individualism, which is literally the opposite of biblical community. If you were going to create like a spectrum and you were going to say, here, over here's biblical community that the gospel creates in Jesus, what would be the exact opposite? What would be the most diametrically opposed idea you could possibly come up with that's totally different than what the Bible actually talks about? And it would be consumeristic individualism. The idea that um, we are fundamentally individuals free of obligations of community to others. That is, that, that look, we, we frankly— and now listen, this is totally different than the, than the Western concept of individual liberalism, individualistic liberalism. So don't get this caught up in your political philosophy. This is the fact that practically the way most of us think or feel about our interactions with our neighbors is that we don't want to be saddled with someone else's problems since they will often detract from, complicate, or endanger our happiness. We've got to keep our lives clean, buttoned down, and folded up. Because once you let up in other people's junk, it gets junky. And consumeristic in that nothing is good unless it is good for us. That is, it enhances our profit, security, and pleasure. Ultimately, we're looking for stuff that's going to help us. And the biblical community is the exact opposite of that. And if that's true— then we need to recognize that our, our idea of friendship, family, body, and people has to be rehabilitated. And it's not only going to have to be re rehabilitated cognitively, like not just me explaining it, you're gonna, we're going to have to live it. We're going to have to do it and re-experience life. And instead of saying, oh, those, kind, those biblical experiences, those don't happen. These over here happen. The fact you got to look out for yourself. No, no, no. These are the experiences we've been having. And it's very easy to confuse the experiences we've been having for the experiences that exist, which are not, an, which are an overlapping set, but not an identical set. There are an enormous amount of experiences that we're skeptical, maybe even cynical that they exist, but they do exist. They just don't exist within the context of the kinds of lives that most of us are living. 
Was that a happy thought? We could change our philosophy by thinking about it or talking about it, but we can only change our hearts, impulses, reactions, and suspicions if we embrace the call to a Christian kind of community, to be one group of friends, family, people, in one body. We are probably, listen, we are probably going to have to make a commitment to this before we feel committed to it. We are probably going to have to make a commitment to this before maybe months before or a year before we feel committed to it. And we're also going to have to learn how to do it. If we've grown up in the soup of consumeristic individualism and we have, then we don't really know how to have this kind of friendship, be this kind of family, be one organism body and be a people together. We have no idea how to do that. Even if you assent to the doctrine, I mean, just look at the family lives most of us grew up with. We can't just pull that into the church. Right? Look at the friendships we've had. They're a mixed bag. Very few of them would fall into the most noble kind of friendship, which is the kind of friendship we're supposed to have. We have to to commit ourselves to these ideas and then relearn them or learn them for the first time. And we're not at ground zero. We're actually in the negatives. We're going to have to unlearn a number of practices and learn a number of practices. That's not going to be easy. And so we're probably going to have to commit to this before we feel committed to it. And we're going to have to try it, and we're going to have to learn how to do it. So I want to spend a few minutes talking about the practices of Christian community. What are the practices of Christian community? Um, In your books, there are nine of them listed. And I'm going to—I have all nine of them here in my notes. But realistically, I think I'm going to talk about five or six of them in the next few minutes. Because I'm I'm aiming for an ending time miracle this morning. So let's do that. Basically, they fall under three headings, okay? They fall under— Affirming one another as friends, sharing with one another as family, and serving with another, one another as, I couldn't come up with anything clever, and neither could Tim Keller. So serving as servants. And each one of those has three under it. Um, and they're in your book, and they're in that order. So under the first one, I want to talk about two of them. The one under affirming one another as friends is... This idea of affirming by expressing appreciation. Um, there was one time where Lex and I went on one of these, like, it's a free vacation if you go to this timeshare thing and so on, right? So, like, I'm at the timeshare thing, and I'm driving around with this guy. He's totally not a Christian. I mean, admits it. He's, like, a mystical Jewish atheist. And so we're driving around in his Wrangler, and he's telling me how I had to buy, buy this place. And he's talking about how his church, he and his, his live-in girlfriend and her two kids go to this evangelical church in Fort Lauderdale every single Sunday. They never miss. Every Sunday. And I was like, and you don't believe in Jesus at all? Nope. Then then why do you go? And this is what he said verbatim. I'm not making this up. He said, there's nowhere else you can take a family in this culture where they're just going to have a positive experience for an hour. He said, just name one. 
where you don't have to worry about what's getting put in front of your kids. It's going to be positive, and you're going to go out usually feeling better than you went in. And I was like, well, I can't think of a bad example because I like that point. <laughs> um, the church ought to be a place where we affirm each other, but here's the problem, right? If you're thinking about the studies we've done already, if our greatest enemy is pride and self-righteousness, how do we affirm each other in the gospel to strengthen our love of Jesus rather than to inflame our pride? Now, it's one thing to just flatter people, and that's bad, you know, whatever. There's enough of that. But even, even more than that, how do you do that, right? It's kind of like, should you tell a kid they're a great soccer player? I don't think so. I don't think you should. I think you should tell them they worked really hard. I think you should tell them that you see them developing a strategy and encourage them that. That's what the, the, the stuff, but, but if you tell them, do you just are this thing, you really just build pride and you decrease motivation. It's not helpful. You just get kids who want to score goals and don't want to figure out how. And you see, we're very, we're very similar to that. So how do you affirm somebody without inflaming pride? And these are the three examples that Keller gives. The first is, if you really believe that God saves people, if you really believe in the miracle of regeneration, that God draws a person to believe, when they believe, he remakes their heart, pours his spirit into them, and creates a work of grace— free love inside of them, then what you would believe is, is that as that grows, that person is going to change. And so what you will see is evidence of grace in their life. And you can just point it out. Because one of the things we all desperately want to know is that God really is working in our life. And that's enormously encouraging and affirming. And so if I say, wow, you're such a good, you're such a, you're so good at that. You're so, you're such a kind person. That may help, but it also may hurt. But if I say, I can see a change in you over the last six months. Just looking at your kids, I'm just, you know, just being able to, in the same small group with you, I can, I can just see God is doing something in you. And I can see you trying to embrace that and walk in it. And it's, be- it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. You should be encouraged by that. There's a way to encourage growth without inflaming pride. We need to find it. The second one is that um, affirming gifts that benefit others. Not just saying, hey, you're great at that, but saying, I watched you use that gift God gave you to help so-and-so. And that was a great thing. Because why affirm somebody for having a gift? That's not reasonable. The question is, have they used that gift for God's glory? And that's a great thing. Point it out. Point out how you saw the effect in somebody else's life and how that's a great thing, right? So that we're focusing both our attention as the affirmer and their attention as the affirmed on the thing God cares about and the thing that's supremely valuable so that that grows in their hearts and that we're both encouraged by the work God is doing and how God is great. And so hopefully our idols will die a little bit and our self-righteousness will die a little bit. And the last is sacrifice is made. When somebody really values Christ— more than that idol and is willing to sacrifice it for some greater purpose, some greater good, something they know God wants them to do, and they go for it. We should say we see it. And, and, and a great way to start. Start with the nursery and children's workers when you go back there. But there's a thousand, 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 thousand ways we can do that. We gotta move on. 
affirming equal importance, one of the things that the scripture teaches everywhere is, listen, God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't show favoritism in salvation or damnation. He doesn't, he just doesn't show favoritism. People are people. People are valuable. People are sinners. People are people. Um, and he wor- he's working for their redemption. And, and, and the, um, there's a command in Leviticus where, and uh, chapter 19 is more important than most of us think it is. So it's, anyway, but here it is. It says, do not pervert justice. What's justice? Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Just kind of interesting. A lot of people only like half of that verse, depending on if you're a Republican or a Democrat. But it, it, the whole idea is, is that you should not show partiality to the poor. In the, in the realm of justice. Justice is blind. But nor should you show favoritism to the rich. And that might have been an obscure verse, but that's the verse that Paul is quoting when he speaks to Timothy as this leader in the church. He says, I charge you in the sight of God, Christ Jesus, and the elect angels. That's, he, never, he doesn't say that anywhere else. He, just, he whips that out for like the end of this book. He's like, I charge you with everything I've got here. And what's, the, what's this big charge? It's to keep these instructions without partiality and doing nothing out of favor. It's the only, pl- only place those two words show up together. Timothy knows. Timothy knows what he's quoting. As you lead the church, in, or as you're in the church, we should not be showing favoritism, partiality to, to people we think are beneath us, and we shouldn't be showing favoritism to people we think are above us. I'd love to say more about that. Let me say one more thing about that. That doesn't mean— that doesn't mean we pound down people who are great. It doesn't mean that. Affirming equal worth doesn't mean when some kid is an amazing artist, we go, well, you're just going to have to wait 17 years until you're old enough to be on the worship team, or we're not going to put any of your art up because you're just a kid, or, like, you know, you need to learn how to submit to us grown-ups, and or, you know, you're a politician, so we're not going to support you. You know, even though you're trying to bring actual reform to this thing, or we're not going to—we don't, we don't have to bang down great people. We should lift them up and honor them. But they're not worth more than anybody else. And they should be the first to be humble, especially when they walk in here. This is where they get to practice being humble. Should be. And then do it out there, right? All right, let's keep moving. We're just going to keep moving. Second, sharing with one another is family. Um, If we're really family with each other, um, at some point, the proverbial rubber has to hit the proverbial road. And we're going to have to share our space goods time with other people as family. It's just, it's, just the, it's just the basis of it. It's very hard to be family and not be family. But here's the problem. Most of us are family, and we don't do this with our family. So the idea that we're going to do it with the church is a little odd. But the, the fact is, is if we don't share with each other, if we hide behind liability law fears, or if we hide behind um, one in a million million um, molestation fears, if I have people over to my house, one of my kids is going to get molested. Or, or if, if, if we just go through our life like an insurance agent rather than a Christian— I don't mean insurance agents are Christians. It's just their, it's their job to be my insurance agent. It's not mine. Right? That's why I pay insurance. Right? So if my car does get blown up, yeah. The point is that that's not our job. It's not our job to go through life trying to make sure that we don't have any risks 
It's our job to go through life like heroes. With both courage and compassion every step of the way. It's our job to make sacrifices that we know are going to hurt up front, but may pay off beautifully in the long run. And the fact, listen, most of the things that will make an enormous difference in the kingdom are going to cost somebody something. They're going to cost somebody something. We have a budget, right? Our budget this year is, I don't know, it's just over a million dollars. Somebody's going to pay that. It might not be you, but somebody's going to pay it. We have building debt over 40 years or 100,000 years. Somebody's going to pay that. It might not be you, but somebody's going to have to sacrifice. If we're going to have more interns at this church doing ministry among college students and younger people and older people and admissions, guess what? Somebody's going to have to open up a spare bedroom. It's going to cost you about $230 a month, I know. I bet there's 30 spare bedrooms in this church right now. Right this minute. I probably could rustle up 10 or 12 young men in the next three months. It's just, re- it's just reality. Listen, if we want to take ground, guess what's going to have to happen? It's going to cost—and it's not just sacrifices to take ground. It's sacrifices to help people get through their lives. How many of us would think it was incredibly irresponsible to invite a single mom and their one child to live with us? We have a spare bedroom. She's paying $350 a month in rent, living with a roommate that has a really abusive boyfriend or something, you know? Like, how many of us think that's just crazy? Probably most of us. I mean, the fact is, is that what, you know, did you even think about inviting your non-Christian neighbor to, your ba- to the last Packer game you watched? Or did you just watch it with your family? It, it's, just, it's just one more bottle of soda and one more bag of chips. And the dad might cuss a number of times. If we just, there's a switch in your head. It's back here somewhere, okay? I'm st- uh, listen, for me, it's a dial. I'm still turning it. But th- back here somewhere, there's something wired that says, I live a private life and my goods are for me. That's one part. And then when you flip the switch, it goes to, wait a second, I'm here for everybody else. I exist for God's will in the life of others. And you just, whoop! All of a sudden, you become that annoying guy who brings a barbecue to the one-hour six-year-old's soccer practice and says, who hasn't had dinner? I got some brats. You become that guy or that woman. You become the woman who's like, who's like, oh, you got, you work, I'll take your kid after school for like two months. Well, you just, you know, just pick him up at 5.30 or so. I'll feed him. You just become, you end up becoming that person. And it's fun. It becomes fun. It's not a drag. But the switch has to flip in here. It has to flip in here. Right? To, to give liberally and not grudgingly requires a new heart. I have no idea where I am. Just kidding. Second is sharing with one another as family. That is, sharing one another's problems. The whole point of the bag is... You, you cannot help carry another person's load without taking on some of the load. It's just, it's a fact of, it's one of the reasons why I, I love that metaphor because it just locks us right the heck down, doesn't it? How do you get around that metaphor? That you can help somebody without helping? You can't. If you help bear another person's burden, it is logically necessary that you carry weight, endure pain, and go with them as long as it takes. That's just, 
It's just built into the logic of the metaphor. You can't get around it. And if we're really going to share each other's problems, we're gonna, we have to share some of the weight. Just have to. And, okay, this one, you, some of you will like, some of you won't, but um, I think it's important to mention it. That is, to share each other's beliefs, thinking, and spirituality as a family. Um, now, some of you might go, okay, Nick, do we really all have to think the same? No, but you ought, to, you ought to yell at each other across the kitchen table about this stuff. What, I mean, if our goal is to live out the faith together, why wouldn't we argue about how we do that together? We should, in our families, in our small groups, among people, with other Christians. The whole idea is, is that the Christian life is a fundamentally different kind of life. Guess what? There is no exhaustive manual for it. It's changing every minute as technology, cultures, and peoples are shifting, changing, and moving. Every minute it looks a little different. How are you going to keep up? How are we going to figure it out? How are we, how are we going to know what it looks like for you? And guess what? Most of our lives are pretty similar. In a, many more ways than we think. And if we talked to each other and wrestled with it and read the same Bible together, we probably could figure a good bit out. Sermons are pretty general. And so, no, we don't have to cookie cutter think like everybody else. But we should be working at trying to figure out the truth. And guess what? If the truth is the truth and we knew it, guess how similarly we would think? Okay. Let me just let me just end with this. The gospel. Um, the gospel is designed by God to create the perfect community. Now that doesn't mean it is. It always is the perfect community. It doesn't even. It's not even usually the perfect community. But remember the the the, the Greek word for perfect, not in Aristotle but in the Bible means something a lot more like complete or mature than just perfect, like there could never be anything better. It doesn't mean ideal. It means right, whole, complete, like it's meant to be. And guess what? Religion and irreligion create bad community. Living for ourselves, therapeutically for whatever makes us feel good, creates bad community. Living self-righteously and religiously makes bad community. The gospel has the potential to make amazing community. And one of the places that it's kind of interesting is, is that the, the classical authors knew this. They didn't have Bibles. But when they thought around, they sat around, they thought about what would ideal friendship the greatest kind of love between two people, what would that look like? They got it pretty dang close. This is how Aristotle said it in Nicomedian Ethics. He said, friendship is based either on the aspiration toward a common absolute for the good of the other or some mutual advantage to themselves. You see that? It's either the gospel or irreligion to him. Do you see? It's either friendship is going to be based on the fact that you both love the same thing and that thing is an absolute worthy of love and so it binds you together or it's going to be on some mutual advantage you get from each other. Who is the object of the friendship? Is it the thing you love or is it what you're going to end up getting from each other, right? Cicero said it this way. He said, Let this be laid down as the first law of friendship, that we should ask from, friend, from friends and do for friends only what is good. You see that absolute again? 
whatever the good is, whatever the virtuous thing is, that has to be the basis of friendship. What we do for them and what we ask from them. He said, but most people not only recognize nothing is good in our lives unless it's profitable, but look upon friends as so much stock, caring most for this by whom and what hope they may make to profit. Accordingly, they never possess that most beautiful and most spontaneous friendship, which must be sought solely for itself without ulterior object. Now think about that. You see, they had it right. They just didn't know what that object was. They knew that there, there must be something that was in and of itself worth binding hearts together over. And they knew that on the basis of it, one would give themselves for, for the other without ulterior motive, without any hope or thought to what that person might give back to them. That they would give that great ultimate good sacrificially to another person. Now, does that remind you of anybody? Can you think of anybody who rightly and absolutely loved all the right things in all the right ways, called us into friendship by calling us to love those things that were worthy of capturing our true heart, and then gave himself absolutely selflessly to us as friends for our good, and never asked anything from us, but that we might love the good too, and love others for that good's sake? Does that remind you of anybody? That reminds me of somebody. And it's not a squirrel. <laughs> Jesus is—that's exactly what he did. He came and what did he say? What did he say? I, you are my friends what? If you love the will of God. Why? Just because he wanted to be exclusive? No, because that was the only thing worth loving. And if they were to, we were to travel together with him and be friends and be bound together, what would we have to love? The one true good, the will of God. Whatever God wills is good because he's good. Therefore, he could just say it in catchphrase, the will of God. And then he says, come with me. Walk in this. And then what did he do? Living for that, he poured himself out for us, not thinking what he could get in return, but that he could be merciful and gracious towards us, that we could be saved, that we could be brought together, that we could be a community, and that we could learn from his example how we might do that for everyone else. It is Jesus, not irreligion or religion, not being bohemian and doing whatever the heck you want or being self-righteous, it's not either kind of idolatry, but it is the gospel of the one true friend who makes the one true family, organism, and people. It is that one who creates community. And if we believe the gospel, how could we not believe that? How could we lay that aside? How could that not be central? How could I not look at you as my brother, a cell in my own body? How could I not look at you as part of my people? How can we do that? It's impossible. Because the gospel breathes it. It drenches everything in that holy dew. It is inescapable that through the one true friend, God makes a people for himself for all who believe. If they believe, he credits it to them as righteousness and they become his friend and unlikely friends to each other. Father, thank you that you have given us the gift of community, the gift of being a people, the gift of being one body, the gift of being unlikely friends, and we pray that you'd help us love it like we should. Help us to adore it. Help us to embrace it. Help us to relearn how to be a friend 
and part of a body and a people and a family.